Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. I've seen teenage boys come to Jesus uh, so they could hang out with some of the girls in our youth group. I've seen people come to Jesus because maybe that'll he'll help them get a job. I've seen people come to Jesus because hell sounds really scary and they don't want to want to go there. What is faith? On the surface, that may seem like a simple question with a pretty simple answer. But for a lot of people, the answer may need a little clarification. Why do I come to Jesus? You and I, we have to stop. We have to ask that question for ourselves. We have to ask that question. Why do I come to Jesus? Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. In our current series, we're taking a look at the action events of the life and ministry of Jesus as recorded in the book of Mark. And today we're looking at a story of a man that desperately wanted his son set free from demon possession. So in faith, the man brings his son to Jesus and his disciples to be healed. But when he comes to Jesus, the man's words indicate that he was unsure whether Jesus could help his son or not. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Well, as Pastor Clay is going to explain, the man honestly evaluated his own faith and asked the Lord to help him where his faith fell short. Jesus said to him, all things are possible to him who believes. I've got a feeling that most of us listening to the message today can identify with the way that man felt. And I'm also confident that the Word of God has something to teach us today about our own faith. Thanks for being with us. Now here's Pastor Clay. do something that maybe you didn't have the, the purest intention or the best intention when you did it? <laughs> Everybody except uh, Rocky has, uh, has, has done that. So. <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I was a teenager, some of y'all know that I... I Got an interest in guitars a few years ago. Started collecting guitars and trying to play some. But when I was a teenager, uh, I bought a guitar. I was 16 or 17 years old. And um, can I be honest with you? (laughs) Well, for once, let me be honest with you. (laughs) Well, y'all been going to the wrong church. No, um... I was in it for the chicks. I, 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 I thought, you know, guitar, chick magnet, right? Come on, guys. Are y'all going to sit there and act like you don't know, right? But then, but this, yeah, that's right. But you see, that's what happened. That's what I found out. I found out that if you have a guitar, there's actually an expectation that you can play it some. And uh, the cool factor just falls off the table uh, if you've got one and can't play it. So that, I really, I really kind of had the wrong <laughs> motivation. But now I, I have the right motivation now because I, I, I already got the chick and, uh, and, I love the, uh, and, I love the, and I love music and my wife. <laughs> and not in that order. And I keep... Keep talking, I'm getting myself further in trouble the more I talk. The last church I, I pastored uh, for several years, there, we had a staff member that was uh, a physical fitness nut. Uh, I mean, not bodybuilding or anything, but he was into long-distance running. His name was Philip. He's in long-distance running and, 
and swimming, did these triathlons and all this stuff. And I hate that stuff. I, 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 I run, I go to the gym, I run on a treadmill, I run outside occasionally because I, because I just know I, I have to. I just got to do that. But, uh, but I don't enjoy it. I've, I've never really, I don't think I've ever had experienced that, you know, runner's high <laughs> that some of y'all have. I'm not putting it, I'm just saying I just hadn't found it. I've been looking for that runner's high for a long time and it hadn't showed up yet. But, but Philip was into all that stuff. And so, you know, I, I, I was a golfer. I, I played golf and that's what I like to do. And I realize that's not, you know, some people don't even consider that really a sport, but, but that's, what I, that's what I did. And, and, and I was... You know, I've always considered myself fairly athletic. I, I lettered in four sports in, in high school. And, you know, so I said, so how hard can this be? You know, triathlon stuff. So I did a triathlon with Philip one time. And uh, one of Steve, another one of our staff members, I wanted to do it with us. Uh, because uh, I just wanted to spend time with, with Philip, honestly. Because I never did that outside of uh, the, the work setting or the, or the church setting. Uh, I, I did hung out with some of the other guys in different settings. But, but that was his deal. And so, so I did it uh, one time. But I can honestly say I, I didn't enjoy it. I got the little medal when I got finished, um, and that was it. <laughs> it was, it was going to happen again if I can uh, help it. I finished dead last in the swim, all right? I'm, t- I'm talking dead last in the swim. I'm, I'm pretty sure like a little eight-year-old kid was, <laughs> I don't know, dead, dead last in the swim. Anyway, so, uh, you know, uh, I, my motivation certainly was not to accomplish a triathlon and it was it was no it wasn't even a full triathlon but anyway let's uh, I want to talk some about uh, why we do what we do uh, if you have a copy of God's word you can open it this morning to Mark chapter 9 that's where we are in our uh, study in our series Jesus the real action hero we're walking through the book of Mark we started in chapter 9 last week and went through verses verse 13 this morning we're picking up and I'm going to read Verses 14 through 29, okay? You know, and if you're part of Cross Culture regularly, you know the text is going to be up on the screen as well, and it will. But I encourage you, you know, if you've got a copy of God's Word, and in whatever form or fashion, open it to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 29, but, uh, and, and you'll see in your outline a, a number of division statements there and blanks to fill in. And uh, We're only really going to get to one of those division statements this morning. There's simply... Uh, for me, there was too much to, to say and too much to look at, and, and I, just, I just hate... I just hate skipping over stuff. I really do, y'all. I know sometimes you have to and, you know, for the sake of time and all that kind of stuff, but, but there's a lot to say about this first division statement this morning, even a couple things that I, aren't actually in your outline. Mark chapter 9, we're beginning in verse 14. If you were here last week, you may remember that in verses 1 through 13, we had the transfiguration, that, that action event where Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured. We talked about he was he was changed from one thing, he looked one way, he was metamorphed, was changed, he, we, we saw him, he, he exposed his divinity is the way we explained it, he exposed his divinity for who he really was, and, um, and uh, Moses and Elijah showed up up there with him, and all that we talked about, all those kind of things, so this is immediately following that, so that's what it means in verse 14 when it says, when they came back, it's saying when, when they came back from this mountaintop experience, let's read through verse 29, when they came back, Uh, to the disciples, the other nine disciples. They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? 
Well, what's this all about? What's, what's this discussion, this argument? What is, what's this all about? Verse 17, And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Verse 19, and he answered them and said, well, I'm so sorry that that happened. Let's see what we can do about that. It's not what he says, is it? Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsions, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out. I love this moment of vulnerability in this man's life. I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, verse 29, this kind cannot come out, but by, out by anything but prayer. Father, uh, this is an amazing story. It seems like every week I say that. Every story is amazing, and I guess it, it should be where, where you're involved. But I just ask as we look into the, a little bit of this today that uh, you would just uh, place your anointing upon me, that I, would, that I would proclaim your message in your power, not in my own. Uh, Lord God, I desire that, uh, that you would accomplish your effective work in the hearts and the lives the minds of every single one of us who are here today, every single one who hear this message, even uh, in, in my own heart, my own mind, as you've been working on me about this, Lord, but to continue to do so, uh, so that I might be all that you would call me to be in Christ Jesus. And may that be so for these people that I so dearly love and care about, in Christ's name, amen. All right, here's, here's the, the one idea we're going to talk about, and then we're going we're gonna to talk about it a, a lot. Honestly ask, this is the first question, honestly ask, it's the first place of honesty, honestly ask why you come to Jesus. Now, I really want, we're going to, hopefully, if time allows, we're going to take a little time this morning, uh, even before the invitation, for you to, to really give some serious thought to that, to just chew on that for a little bit. Why do I come to Jesus? Why did I come to Jesus? Why do I come to Jesus? What is going on in this, what's my motivation? What's my purpose? What do I hope to get out of this anyway? In Mark chapter 9, as I said just a moment ago, uh, Jesus and uh, Peter, James, and John have been up on the mountaintop. They've literally had a mountaintop experience. One of the things I like about uh, this 
this story and this, this action event is that it really kind of, for me, when I think about it, it really kind of hits home because I thought, here, here they are, they're, they're literally up on this mountain. They're having this mountaintop experience, and it was glorious. Uh, it was fantastic. Whatever all it was, I know it was, a, it, it was amazing. Uh, and they come back down literally into the valley, and the first thing they run into is a mess, right? The first thing they run into are these uh, scribes arguing with the disciples. And, and I was thinking, you know, that, that really is kind of a pretty accurate picture of life, our life in general, isn't it? it, it aren't there times in your life where you think, man, I'm getting this thing. I, I'm getting on top of this Jesus thing. I, I'm... I'm I'm growing, I'm, I'm enjoying spending time in His Word, I, I'm beginning to see His fruit manifested in my life, I'm beginning to see it come out, I'm, I'm beginning to, to, to learn about the joy of the Lord, and, uh, and I'm reacting the right way to people, and, and I'm, you know, you just, the times when you really feel like you're beginning to get it, and then, yeah, faster than you can say anything. You, you just, you're, you're in the flesh and you're acting and you're saying something that you wish you hadn't said and you're, and you're getting angry and your feelings are hurt and you're, well, Cindy and I were talking about that this morning. That's one of the songs that we're singing this morning. It just remind us of how quickly and how much we need God in our life and how quickly we can, we can move from, from what would seem like a, a mountaintop experience and we can move down into this valley and we can get back in the flesh. We can get back in this, and we feel like we're just a failure at this thing. Now, of course, Jesus uh, didn't fail, but it, it just reminds us of how quickly this can happen in our lives. They come down. Here's this argument going on with the scribes. Now, the scribes, uh, uh, some of you probably already know this, but the scribes basically were just part of the religious bunch. They were the guys that had the responsibility of, of writing the Word of God. Now, there's no printing presses back then. There's no uh, Xerox. There's no email. Everything, if you wanted a copy of something... Somebody had to write it, exactly, and that's what the scribes did, and they were very detailed about it, they were very uh, specific about it, and they had all these rules and regulations about how they did exact, you know, tried so hard to exactly copy the text and all that stuff. And so because of that, the scribes were often kind of considered, you know, maybe some experts at the law, at the, at the, at the, the Word of God in general, because they are the ones that are writing it down all, all the time. So when Jesus comes down, uh, he finds that his disciples, his other nine disciples, are in an argument, it seems to imply that, with the scribes. About what, we don't know specifically. But a good guess might be that, they are, that they're, they're riding them about the fact that they couldn't cast out this, this demon out of this boy. I mean, that, that makes sense to me, that they would be getting, kind of getting in their stuff about the fact that, that they couldn't cast out this demon. Now, the scribes couldn't cast the demon out either, and I, and I doubt if they were even trying, and I doubt if they claimed that they could. Whereas I suspect that Jesus' disciples both believed that they could and probably were claiming that they could. So maybe, maybe they're, they're writing them about that. But whatever the reason, they're in the middle of this, and Jesus says, what, what, what is this? What are y'all talking about? What's going on? What are you doing? And this man steps forward, and, and he says, teacher, he says, I brought... My son to you who is, has an unclean spirit, he's possessed by a demon, is, is what he says. He's possessed by a demon. Now, quite honestly, when, when we read this, much of what he describes, the, the symptoms of what's going on, much of what he describes sounds to us much like a medical condition, uh, what we would think of as an epileptic seizure. 
And it very well may have been or mirrored those symptoms. But it's very clear from the text that this is not a natural uh, ailment, that this is a spiritual ailment, that, that he is uh, controlled by, possessed by, however you want to say it, uh, a demonic entity, a demonic spirit has come upon this boy. Now, we have talked about demons some as we've walked through Mark, because if you've been with us through this study, you know that, man, Jesus is casting out a lot of demons. <laughs> have you seen, I mean, hadn't that come up a lot? Jesus cast out a lot of, a lot of demons. Can I just say, first off, that uh, uh, demons are, sti- I'm absolutely convinced that demons are still very real today. They're still part, they're still loose in the world. There's coming a day when they won't be, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, there, there, there is still demonic influence in the world today. And demon possession is still a real thing. I don't, I, I'm not going to necessarily say when it is or how you can, that person definitely, or what, but I'm telling you that, that it is still a real thing. And, and I don't want to give demons too much time or too much credit, but as I was working through this text, I thought, you know, maybe this would be a good place to stop and just talk for a minute about, you know, demons themselves. And wh- why would they do it? I mean, clearly they are, they are inflicting a great amount of physical, emotional, and spiritual pain on this boy and his family. I mean, they, they, it, it's awful what they're doing to this, this young man. Why, why do they do that? Why, why would they bother doing that? I, there's a few ideas that I wanted to share with you this morning that may not explain everything about what's going on, but I'd say these are pretty safe bets. First off, I think, I think demons hate us for our position. Do you, know, do you know how incredibly unique you are in the universe? Do you understand that you are the only thing in God's creation, you, you being man, mankind, that is created in the image of God? Nothing else in the kingdom world, nothing else in the, in the animal uh, kingdom, nothing else in the natural world, nothing else in the spiritual realm is created in the image of God. Now, whatever all that might mean, and I don't think any of us could stand here and, and state definitively all that, that, that it means to, be, to say that you are created in the image of God, but it is something unique that God did only for mankind, for, for men and for women. You are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I think the, de- the demonic realm hates you because of that. But not only because of your position, but I believe that they also hate us for the second reason. I think they hate us for our privilege. Listen, because God became a man, and because the God-man went to a cross, and because he went to that cross, he redeemed mankind, and he redeemed mankind. And because of his redemption, it made it possible. Are you ready for this? It made it possible for you and me to be adopted. Adopted into the family of God. Listen, adopted into the family of God. I, I, don't, I really don't think that we slow down enough to appreciate what that means. But I'm telling you, the, the, the demonic world understands what it means. They understand the privilege that you and I have. Can I just remind you of a couple of verses today? Second Corinthians, or Romans, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he, say it, adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, 
father. Some of you know that, that Abba is a term of endearment in the Aramaic. It, it's, it's essentially like saying daddy. <laughs> I just, I'm a... The creator of the universe has made it possible for you and I to, to draw so near to him that he would want this, that he would want us to be able to come into a, a place where we could actually call him daddy. Not flippantly or irreverently, but that's how, that's how he wants this thing to be. Again, uh, Paul repeats it in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. There it is again, crying, Abba, Father. Daddy, this relationship that we have, what an amazing, what an incredible privilege that you and I have. And I'm telling you, the demonic realm hates you for that. Our position and our privilege, and I think think it's another reason, at least one other reason why they hate us. I think demons hate us for our potential. Because, listen, you and I have have the opportunity to glorify God in our lives, right? Right, we know that. And again, whatever all it means to bring glory to God, but, but when I get it right, when I, when I treat a person the right way, when, I, when I'm respectful to my wife and I honor her, and, and when, I, uh, when I turn away from uh, a, a temptation situation, whatever it is, when I live my life, I, I, I get to glorify, I'm glorifying God in that. But bonus, we have the potential to see other people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. God can use us to draw others to him, to see them come to Christ. And as a result of that, guess what happens when other people come to Christ? God is glorified more. The kingdom of God expands more. The kingdom of light expands more. And when the kingdom of light expands, what happens to darkness? That's right. And Satan and the demonic forces hate you for that. For the potential that is in you. Oh, if you, if you understood the potential that is in you and the difference and the impact that you can make in this world. Okay, all right. <laughs> what time is it? Okay. Um, now, this isn't in your notes. It's just something I was thinking about this morning because I was thinking, well, well now, okay, what, what, what do they need to do? You just told them they, the, the demons hate them and, and what do they need to do? Can I just, I'll just give you two things, all right? And you can write it down or not write it, whatever you want to do. But just, just a couple of ideas here. What do we need? First, you've you got to wake up, folks. You've got to wake up to the reality of what's going on around you. Even though with our physical eyes, we may not see it. Look, here's what uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, listen, I know when you're in the middle of that fight with your wife... Your husband, your boss, your kids. There, there's, there's more at work here. That's all I'm telling you. There's more going on here than we realize. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We've got to wake up to that reality, ladies and gentlemen. It, it's, it is astounding to me how many times people say, well, you know, I know I, in the morning I get up and I know I should, you know, I should pray some. I know I should spend time in God's word, but I, there's so much going on and I, I've got to do this and I've, I've got to do that. And, and really, I just, I, I really, I can't afford that time. No, no, you can't afford to not spend that time. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But you, you have to wake up to the reality that there is a spiritual enemy that he is working in, in this world, and that his desire would be to 
to destroy us, if, if that were possible. Yeah, same thing in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, be of sober spirits. What he said, wake up, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, it just, if you don't get anything else out of this message this morning, walk out of here this morning saying, all right, I have got to be more conscious of, of, of not getting so wrapped up in just what's the material world and what I'm seeing and, and the appointments I've got to be to and the things I've got to have my kids to and the, this I've got to do. And I've got, I've got to be alert to the fact that there is a spiritual realm and that there is a spiritual war going on in that realm. So, number one, wake up. Number two, suit up. Suit up, ladies and gentlemen. Ephesians chapter 6 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Paul's bringing that letter to an end. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Watch this. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the, what? The schemes. What does that say to you? Against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. In other words, all that's within your responsibility that God wants you to do, to suit up, to put on, that's what you've got to do. We're operating in His power, but what's within your power to do, the part you're supposed to do, and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins. Let me just read all. Girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, notice how Paul puts that, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You have to suit up. I was telling the C2 uh, kids workers this morning that uh, years and years and years ago, I heard a message uh, by Dr. Charles Stanley uh, where Dr. Stanley uh, shared that, that he never lets his feet hit the floor in the morning. He does not put his feet to the floor until he recites the armor of God in his mind. He's, he's read it enough times that he's got that, he's got that down, he's got that memorized, and, and every morning he, he just walks through it. He says, Lord, I'm, right now I'm putting on the helmet of salvation. Thank you for that salvation available to me. Would you, would you use it to protect my mind from whatever the enemy would bring out? And I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness Righteousness. I'm made righteous in Christ Jesus, not by my own righteousness, but by His. In other words, he, he, just, he just puts it on. You understand what I'm saying? In his mind, he puts it on. That is not a bad habit to get into, ladies and gentlemen. To start every day, you know, have your Bible beside you until you get it memorized and open Ephesians 6 and begin reading. God, right now, and some of you already know this, but it's, it's, it's pretty generally believed. The Apostle Paul, we know he was in prison when he wrote that letter to the church in Ephesus. Many people believe that he was literally chained to a Roman soldier uh, while he was in that prison and that he's looking at that soldier and he's making a spiritual application of a, of a physical reality in his life. He's seeing those different parts of the Roman soldier's armor and he's applying them to the spiritual battle that you and I face. You've got to, you've got to wake up and you've got to suit up. And if you don't, you don't, don't blame God. When it comes, you understand when, when, it, when it all comes down on you, all, don't say, oh God, where are you? God's like, been right here the whole time. Okay, all right. That's enough about the, the, the demons. I don't say too much. But anyway, listen. Here we go. So, so here's this guy, right? And I, 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 don't think, I don't think a single one of us would blame this, this father for bringing his child to Jesus to be healed. 
Do you? Is there, is there anybody that's in here that's a parent that could blame the, the son is in this horrible condition and he brings uh, his son to Jesus? I don't think any of us could, could blame, Jesus, uh, blame the man for doing it. And can I tell you something? I don't think Jesus blamed the man. I think Jesus had compassion on this But his response that we read in verse 19 clearly indicates that he is expecting or looking for something more. He's looking for something else out of these people. There's something more that he's trying to get to with them. Watch, let's just kind of break it down and get technical with you for, for just a moment. He, he calls us, it first, starts out in verse 19, his response is, Oh, unbelieving generation. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and in the Greek, um, the, the word for unbelieving is apistos. Uh, it comes from pistis, which means faith or belief. And it has what's called a, a, an alpha privative as, as a prefix. And an alpha privative, says, I, I know I'm getting technical, but listen, this is important. An alpha privative simply means that whatever the word means, that, that it's the opposite of that. So uh, what he sees, I mean, he's, he's nailing them on this. So pistos literally means uh, uh, without faith or faithless or unbelief. You faithless, you unbelieving generation. You, 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 you unbelieving generation. Now, here, here's where, to me, it really gets interesting. It appears to me, and maybe it's just me, but it appears to me that these people have faith. I, isn't that why they came to Jesus in the first place? And, and it says, I mean, when they saw Jesus, buddy, they, psh, they're just on it. Jesus is a rock star at that point in his ministry. I mean, they, they want to be with him. They want to see what he's going to do. The funny thing, though, isn't about, about crowds, because it wasn't going to be long before uh, they were going to decide that the cost to follow Jesus was too high a price to pay. But, but, but isn't that why they came? Didn't this man come because he had heard, possibly even seen, some of the things that Jesus had, had, had done? Even his own disciples, although they weren't able to do it, didn't they attempt to cast out this demon? Wasn't that an act of faith? Probably based on the fact that back in chapter 6, just three chapters ago, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus gave them authority over demonic powers. So it's it kind of like they are. <laughs> they are acting by faith. Aren't they demonstrating their faith? No. Uh, there's something more to this. That's, that's what I'm trying to get to. There's something more going on here that would cause Jesus to call, to call him an unbelieving generation. And I believe the answer is found in the rest of his response. Look at what he says. He says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? By the way, leave that up for a second, uh, uh, Will. By the way, you can see, can, can you really see Jesus' authority in that statement right there? Because, right, no politician would ever talk to people like that, right? Nobody trying to win the people's approval would ever talk like this. But as I've said, I don't know how many times through the years, ladies and gentlemen, God is not running for re-election. God is not, is not uh, looking at market research or, or hashtag responses or Facebook likes. God is God, and Jesus is God in the flesh, and Jesus' authority is established. And you, and you can see it. You can see it in this text, in his response. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? You see, here's the deal. Here's the deal. 
Jesus knows that he's not going to be with them much longer, right? By the way, he's already said it several times. He's going to say it again. If you look on down, I think it's verse 31, still chapter 9. He's going to say it again. Son of man, going to die. <laughs> going to die. He's telling tell this all the time. Jesus knows. He knows that his physical time of being with them is not going to be much longer. The problem is the people are still totally focused on the physical. They're still totally focused on what Jesus can do for me. And so, that, listen, that they, they are consumed with, focused on, thinking about here and now, physical, instead of something greater. They couldn't see the fact that God in the flesh was standing right in front of them, was offering something that would, not that would last a lifetime or a hundred years or a thousand years or even a billion years, but something that would last forever. And that's what he was offering to them. And, and they, they are so focused in on here and now and the kingdom and Jesus is going to establish authority and I'm going to, which one of us is greatest? That's coming up. Which one of us is going to be the greatest? They're so focused on that that they're missing. It's not that they didn't have faith. It's that they didn't have faith in the right, in the right direction, in the right thing. They're focused on what, he's gonna, what, he's gonna do, can, what he can do for them now, right? And Jesus, I got a few statements. I mean, he didn't, I mean, it's, it's like he, he said, that. it's like Jesus uh, wants them to understand that he didn't come to, to, to be a, a wonder worker. He, he came to be a wonderful savior. He came to accomplish something more than, and, and listen, it's not that he didn't care about people's needs. And it's not that his miracles didn't demonstrate his power and authority. They, they did, but, but he came for something greater than that. And they, they were missing it. Which, by the way, people still do today. <laughs> and Jesus is saying to, to that crowd, to that man, and, and even to his own disciples, things like this. He's saying to them, you've asked me, you've come to help me, asked me to help one, but I've come to help all. Guys, you understand? You, you want, okay, you want me to heal this, this young man, but I've come to do much more than that. John three sixteen. maybe I'll know that, Pastor. Would y'all, say, would y'all read that out loud with me, please? For God so loved the world, come on, that he gave his only begotten son, that who, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. Jesus says, you've, you've come to me to cast out one demon, but I've come to crush all demonic power. Look at what, uh, the way Peter puts it, 1 Peter 3. Uh, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers, had been what? Subjected to him. Jesus is saying, you've come to me to make one son whole, but I've come to make a whole bunch of sons. That's why I've come. Look, look at it. Look, look at these Look, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What? (laughs) Come on. Galatians chapter 3. For you are all sons of God, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, they're missing it. They're still missing it. They're growing. They're getting there. But Jesus is nearing the cross, and he's pushing them just like he pushes us. In our life circumstance, and we think, God, why are you doing this? Yeah, trying to get you to this place where you understand what is really, really important. You know, I, can I tell you this? Uh, when we ask this question, you know, wh- why, why, why do I come to Jesus? Can I tell you? I've seen, uh, I've seen teenage boys come to Jesus uh, so they could hang out with some of the girls in our youth group. You know what I'm saying? I, I've seen people come to Jesus because they, they thought or were in hopes it was going to get, they were going to get money out of it. 
I've seen people come to Jesus because, uh, because maybe that'll, he'll help them get, the, get a job. I, I've seen people come to Jesus because hell sounds really scary and they don't want to go there. I'm not saying there may be some legitimacy to, to some of those things. I, I'm just saying that, that you and I, we have to stop. We have to ask that question for ourselves. We have to ask that question, why do I come to Jesus? Some things that ought to be there as we deal with this question about why do I come to Jesus? What, what should it look like? Let me, let me just give you some ideas real quick. First, uh, there needs to be a priority on eternal, not temporal. And listen, that, that is not easy to do. Because uh, I said, and I mentioned this uh, sermon a couple months ago, but you know, we, we live in the stream of time. And we, we, most of us, at least here in the Western culture, are slaves to time right? Slaves to our watches, our, our clocks. So I got to be here. I got to do this. I got to, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, but there has to begin to be this process in my mind where I begin to, to step away so much from the temporal and focus more on the eternal, on what, on what really ultimately lasts, what really ultimately matters. Look at this passage of scripture in Colossians chapter 3. Watch what Paul says to the church in Colossae. Since then, since then you have been raised with Christ. So he's talking to people that, that have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Since you've been raised with Christ, watch this. Set your hearts on things above. Above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There is an eternity that is to come, ladies and gentlemen. And the temporal is something that is fleeting so quickly and yet consumes so much of our time. Second, there needs to be focus on the spiritual, not the physical. And this really is just the other side of the coin of, of eternal, not temporal. But it's spiritual, not physical. Again, there is this spiritual realm, there's the spiritual world, which you and I, with our physical eyes, may not be able to see at this point, but it doesn't mean it's not real. But you know what? I can touch, I can touch this. So, I, so this, is, this, is, this is what gets my attention. How did all these scratches get on here? Who dropped this? Right? That's what I, um, but what is, what is this? No, there, there has to be more of a focus on the, on the spiritual. Matthew 16, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, then they'll find it. Listen to what he says. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Do you know people? I know people like that. Do you know people like that? That are consumed with, with if I can just get this, if I can have that, if I can reach that, if I can get this level. If I, it, it's all about the physical and not the spiritual. If he gains the whole world and forfeits soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You think you're going to... Uh, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. There it is again. He just said in Colossians. And will then repay every man according to his deeds. There is, as a famous preacher used to say, there is a payday coming someday. And, and you and I have to think in that realm. We have to think more. What is really... What is really of value, spiritual things or material, physical, temporal things? Is there some value? Do I need to provide for my family? Yes, of course. But when those things begin to take precedence and priority over what is spiritual and eternal, that's when I've gotten things out of balance. And then the last thing is just this. Eternal, not temporal. Spiritual, not physical. Relational, 
not formal. I, I wish so many people I know that it's, it's just, this thing is religion to them. And, 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 and there's a sense that religion is not a bad word, but there's a sense that it is a bad word because people think of it as some, some formal, ritualistic, you know, bow down, do this, or, or whatever God it is, burn this incense, or, or whatever. And that, that's never been, you understand? I, that's never been what this has been about for God. God didn't need that. Do you think back before the world was even created, God said, wow, wish I had somebody to worship me. I, I feel somehow incomplete. I, I, I need, I'm telling you that's not what this, I, I'm telling you that's not what this is about with God. This is about this relationship that he's chosen to have with us. And so uh, his word says this in Romans 8, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There's that adoption thing again. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself uh, testifies with our spirit that we are, look at this, children of God. And if children, heirs. Also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Not because we deserve it, not because we've done something, but because he has chosen to do this for us. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified. In other words, if we, if we, if we die to ourselves, we give this thing over to him, then we experience what real life is. Then, then it begins to become, become this relationship and not this ritual, not this religion, not this thing. But it's this vibrant, ongoing, living, day-to-day relationship that I have with the Father. That's what it ought to look like. I don't know whether that's what you have. I don't know if that's what this looks like for you, but I know that's what it can look like for every single one of us. If you know Christ, or if you would desire to come to Christ, it means that you can be adopted into the family of God and are an heir, even a joint heir with Christ, and you can be called a child of God. Why do you come to Jesus? That's a great question. And as we heard Pastor Clay explain today, a lot of people come to Jesus for a lot of different reasons. Hopefully today's message has caused each of us to think about what our motivation is for coming to Jesus. I think the last part is especially important to remember. What we have with God and why we come to Him is meant to be relational, not formal. That doesn't mean that we should take a relationship with God for granted or that we should enter His presence presumptuously or flippantly. God is holy God, and being in His presence and being able to draw near to Him is a tremendous privilege. It is a high and holy moment. But it also isn't to be turned into something formal, ritual, cold, lifeless, and distant. No, as we heard today, through Jesus Christ, we become a part of the family of God. And like any other relationship that we have, it should be a growing, vibrant thing where we enjoy being in God's presence. Next week, we're going to continue to look at this story of faith and learn more about what faith really is and how it works in our lives. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, 
Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, and it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.